Well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving belated. I hope you all had a wonderful time giving thanks. We sure did. Um, this morning we're going to start, as we usually do, by praying through a psalm. And this morning I've chosen Psalm 72, which is on page 810 in your hymnal. And uh, the handouts are coming around. If you haven't gotten one, just raise your hand and somebody will get you one. Mike, you want to? There's a few down front here that. Psalm 72 is actually a psalm written by Solomon, a psalm of Solomon, and uh, it's a beautiful psalm. Obviously, you'll, be, you'll see the Christological uh, implications of it, um, but what I want you to focus on as we read it this morning is its references to the poor. Um, we're going to be covering this morning the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, and we're going we're gonna to look briefly, certainly won't give the subject um, all that it's due, but we'll look briefly at the subject of wealth and poverty. And uh, I want you to pay careful attention as we read through this um, to its expressions about the poor um, in this psalm. It's very representative of uh, the passages throughout the scripture on the poor. Um, so let's read it together. I'll read the unbolded, and you all will read the bolded. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise 
Praise be to His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. A beautiful psalm, I, uh, one of my favorites in the Psalter. Um, but I hope you saw and uh, considered uh, the statements about the poor, and especially in terms of the justice for the poor, um, even from the perspective of the king. Um, in this case, of course, Solomon, and ultimately, of course, the reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have more to say about that um, later on this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the Eighth Commandment, a very short commandment, um, though we have two very long questions and answers in the, uh, in the Catechism. We're going to look at the text of the Eighth Commandment first, um, just the simple statement of the commandments. We'll look at the larger Catechism questions and answers. Um, I want to look at two uh, underlying implicit assumptions of the Eighth Commandment, or two presuppositions, if you will, of the Eighth Commandment. And then I want to, do, want to look at three areas that are related uh, to the Eighth Commandment, to, um, to stealing, if you will, or to uh, uh, both the positive and negative sides of stealing, tithing, uh, taxation, and wealth and poverty. If you, you can kind of tell by the subjects here, this may get a little political. Well, I, I'll apologize ahead of time uh, for that, but uh, that's okay. The scripture has much to say um, about uh, government's role and about our, uh, our obedience even and our honoring of those in authority over us. So we'll look at that. Um, let me start before we jump into looking at the commandment with a word of prayer. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And I pray now as uh, we, d we look at it together, as we study it, that you would teach us by it. And that you would not only teach us by it, but that you would by your spirit grant us grace to be obedient to it. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, he who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Okay, the Eighth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Very simply, you shall not steal. Or in the old, thou shall not steal. And in Deuteronomy 5, exactly the same other than the first word, and you shall not steal. Not much to it, right? Um, that's all I had to say. No, um, it's a very simple commandment. But if... Uh, if you really look at it, if you really consider it, um, who would you steal from? What do we typically think of when we look at the Ten Commandments? The first four are what? Our relationship to whom? To God. The last six are typically thought of as our relationship to our neighbor, right? And while that's true, it's very true, I hope you're going to see today that only thinking of the commands from that perspective can be very narrowing, very limited. Um, the last six commands aren't just commands related to our neighbor. They certainly are those. And certainly the summary of the law, as Christ taught it, was love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. But as we're going to see today, our neighbor is not the only one from whom we steal. 
Notice what John Frame says about this commandment. I think I have this in your handout. If theft includes robbing God of his due, then we can understand how, in a sense, all sin is theft. So the Eighth Commandment is a broad mandate upholding God's whole law. You see that? I mean, if you actually think about it, um, all sin is, in a sense, theft of what is rightfully owed to your Creator, who, after all, owns all things, right? He is the owner of all things, and what are we? We are stewards of what he has entrusted to us. And so from that perspective, I would say we need to consider this command today. Um, we'll have more to say about that uh, later, especially on the subject of wealth and poverty. But let's now look at the, uh, the questions and answers to the larger catechism uh, in the Eighth Commandment. And notice how comprehensive these questions are. I, or maybe I shouldn't say comprehensive. Maybe I should say how detailed and long these answers are. Okay, there's a lot here. I mean, one command, thou shalt not steal, how does it involve all this? Um, it's very interesting. What are the duties required of the Eighth Commandment? The answer is the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. And by the way, for those of you that aren't that uh, familiar with the Westminster Standards and especially the Catechism, one of the ways that will really help you as you read through the Catechism questions is look for the semicolons. Okay? Keep an eye out for semicolons because that's actually the, the separation between major thoughts. Okay, there's a lot of commas in there. This looks like you know, one of a Pauline sentence that goes on for paragraph after paragraph. But it's, um, if you look for the semicolons, you can really kind of break it up into, into the thoughts. So the duties required are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man. Rendering to everyone his due. Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. Giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. A provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustainment of our nature and suitable to our condition. A lawful calling, and here we're calling is, is work, a lawful calling and diligence in it. Frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements. Of course, suretyship, we don't use that word a lot today, but it's, it's becoming legally liable for the debts of others or for uh, their failure. Um, and, uh, and the scripture has a lot to say about guarding, your, especially in Proverbs, about guarding yourself for becoming legally liable uh, for others. And an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, 
and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Okay, we, we often pay a lot of attention to our own wealth and uh, making sure it's furthered. Um, but do we consider it for others as well? This is the positive side of the commandment. Um, this is one of the things I really like about the Westminster divines is they not only looked at the commandments negatively uh, in terms of what is forbidden, but they also um, made a careful study of its positive requirements. Here, is the, here are the negative requirements. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Question 142. The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, or what we would call in today kidnapping, and receiving anything that is stolen. Notice not only just stealing yourself, but being the beneficiary of stolen goods. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures. We'll have more to say about that in a little bit. Removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust. Oppression, extortion, you know, painting by force or intimidation. Usury, uh, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depredation or plunder, engrossing or amassing, another word for that, commodities to enhance the price. We're really getting into economics now, aren't we? Unlawful callings and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. Covetousness, notice here the overlap in the Ten Commandments themselves. Uh, many of the commandments, to break them or to break the others, even as James says, you break one commandment, you've broken them all. Um, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them. That's a description of our culture if I've ever heard of one, right? We're so concerned, especially at this time of year, of getting, of keeping hold on, of amassing uh, as much as we can. He who dies with the most toys wins is our motto. Envying at the prosperity of others as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby, whereby we do unduly prejudice, that is, injure or damage, our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. That's a mouthful. There's a lot there. How in the world did we come up with that large an answer for such a small command. John Frame says, we see here how ingenious fallen man is, or fallen man becomes at finding ways to take what belongs to others. Let me tell you, um, this is a very, very prevalent sin, especially in our day. And it's a sin um, in my life 
and I, I have no doubt it's a, a sin in all of our lives to some extent. And, and it would be, um, would be good that we would pay careful attention uh, to this this morning. Okay, two implicit assumptions or two presuppositions that go with the Eighth Commandment. When it says, thou shalt not steal, what is obviously the most obvious thing that, it, that is implied there? To say you can't steal means what? What constitutes stealing? Taking what? Something from somebody else. In other words, what's presupposed here is there's private property. People own things, right? You have things that are yours, okay? Now, again, we will always caveat this as Christians from the perspective that God owns all, and we are stewards. I, I can't say that enough this morning, and I'll say it numerous times. But that being said, the scriptures do teach private ownership. I'll give you one example. It's a very interesting parable that our Lord taught. Um, it's often many times people read it and scratch their heads and, um, wow, you know, is this, is this really justice? Um, it comes from Matthew 20. If you have your Bibles, you're uh, free to turn there or just listen. Um, Christ said this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, and by the way, a denarius was what? How much, how much was it worth? A day's wage. It was a day's wage for a common laborer. Okay? So he agreed with a day's wage for a, a day of work. He sent him into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So notice he doesn't stipulate a denarius. He just says, whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, one hour to go, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came in, each of them received a twelfth of a denarius, right? No, each of them received a denarius. And of course, what do the ones that had worked longer think at this point? When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. The guy that works one hour gets a denarius. I work 12 hours. It's adding up, right? But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What are they saying here? It's not fair. This is not what? Just. Right? And at this point, does Christ say, Yes, this is injustice? They are right. 
But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And now notice the next phrase. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? You really couldn't get a more blatant statement on private property than that, could you? But what's the point of this parable, right? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. My point here isn't to try to um, delve into even Christ's purpose for this parable but to point out the fact that private property is assumed in Scripture, and it's taught. And yet, at the same time, generosity is never wrong, right? It's never wrong to be merciful and just with what is yours, right? We'll have more to say that in comparison with whether it's right for government to do that in a little bit. But um, certainly scripture would have us be clear on the fact that God has entrusted us with property. And we have a right to do with that property um, as we see fit, recognizing that God is the giver and that generosity and mercy uh, are certainly what's put forth as good in scripture. The second implicit assumption um, or presupposition is simply a work ethic. Um, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I think I've included this in your handout as well. Let the thief no longer steal. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather what? Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And John Frame commenting on this verse says, work is the antithesis of theft. Labor replaces theft as a means of sustenance. And more than that, it turns the thief into a benefactor. What a beautiful description of work our work. It not only allows us to sustain ourselves so that we don't have to steal, but it also allows us to be generous, to be able to give. Do we look at our wealth that way? It is an underlying assumption of the Eighth Commandment, an underlying presupposition that, um, that work is good. Even as the Fourth Commandment, when we looked at that, um, not only did God give us a day of rest, he gave us six days to labor. So this commandment assumes um, that we are working, that we are making a living. Okay, let's look at a couple of applications of this. I'm going to look at these very quickly. We don't have time to delve deeply into them. But let's just first talk about tithing. I'm, I'm only going to say a few things. I'm not even going to try to give a biblical basis for tithing in this day. There's a lot of discussion about whether tithing um, ought to be 
in the new covenant something we do? Is it mandated, etc.? My point isn't to, to look at it in, in a, a detailed exposition of the scripture's teaching on tithing, but I want to just put it before you in light of the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Consider what the scripture says about tithing. Malachi chapter 3. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And remember what tithing was in the Old Covenant. It wasn't like we consider giving money or putting money in an offering plate, right? Tithe was actually a tenth, tithe actually means tenth, of their, the produce. In an agrarian society, they would actually bring the first fruits, a tenth, to um, the temple area, if you will, and they would be stored in a storehouse to be distributed. Um, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What a beautiful, beautiful test that is. Um, often we're told in Scripture, do not put God to the test, right? Here, put him to the test. See if he will not be faithful to bless you richly if you refrain from robbing him. And, uh, it, and certainly in the Old, co in the old Covenant, um, bring your tithes and contributions. But here's, here are the scripture in the New Covenant. Paul's words to the Corinthian church, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That actually is almost seems like it doesn't even need to be said, right? Of course, the more seed I put out there, the more growth I should expect, should I not? But we often don't think of that when it comes to our own resources or our money, do we? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All I really want to say here about tithing, about giving to the Lord, about being merciful to others is put God to the test. See if he will bless you beyond your imagination. Um, and, and remember that blessing isn't always material. Um, it's not always that if I tithe or if I give, God will give me a fortune. In, in, in worldly terms. But God indeed will bless us as we're faithful uh, to give him his due. Another subject that, that um, really hits us hard, especially in this day and age, is the subject of taxation. And really what I'm getting at here is uh, the Eighth Commandment from two perspectives. First of all, is taxation stealing? Is, is government stealing when they tax? And second, before you answer that, yes. See a lot of head nodding, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and, and also, 
What is our responsibility as a taxpayer? Is it stealing if we don't pay our taxes, right? Um, let me just start off by, uh, by setting the record straight with respect to Scripture on our, what we, how we ought to think about taxation. And I'm, of course, going to use the passage in Romans where Paul uh, tells the Roman church or, or speaks of this subject to the Roman church. Romans chapter 13, uh, the first seven verses. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Oh, but Paul, you don't know my government. You haven't lived in America, or you name the country, right? Let's, let's just consider, who was an authority when Paul was writing this? Very nice people. In fact, very nice people that lived the same place the church did that, that, that we're writing, he's writing to here. The Romans, the Caesars, those who actually consider themselves divinity. Um... These were pagans of a very, a very stout uh, nature. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now listen to this next phrase. For he, the governor, who, he who is governing, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's, very, that's basically a very short definition of the purpose of governing authorities, right? To carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's a very simple statement of what government's purpose is um, from a biblical perspective. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. How many times do we think of government as ministers of God? Ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And then, of course, we forget the rest because that's no fun. Respect to whom respect is owed. Did you ever think of when we don't give respect to those in authority over us, we're stealing from them? Honor to whom honor is owed? But why should I honor the one in, in power right now? It's not my political party. Is that, what, is that what God would have us to do? We could learn quite a bit from this passage um, with respect to stealing, not only monetary, monetarily, um, but honor, respect. Um, it's something that all Christians ought to take to heart, even especially as you talk about 
um, political rulers in your day and age. This next quote here I have is from Abraham Kuyper. As I mentioned before, Kuyper was a statesman um, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century in the Netherlands. Um, he was very reformed, and he actually uh, was prime minister of the Netherlands from uh, 1901 to 1905. Um, here, listen to what he says about taxation from, a, from the, the government's perspective. And he's actually, this quote actually follows his quoting of what I've just read, Romans chapter 13. He says this, or thus reads the word of the apostle of Jesus Christ, that is the apostle Paul. A word that still today sanctions and hallows the government's right to administer finances. A government does what it does not because you ask it to, not because it wants to, but because God so ordained it. Its duty, that is attending to this very thing, as Paul said, is to defend the good and punish the evildoers, a task that incurs great cost. That is no insignificant cost, to defend the good and punish evildoers rightly. Thus, taxes are a nation's sacred offering, rendering to God in order that God should rule the nation by means of the authority he has ordained. We, we don't often think of taxation in those words, do we? And yet, that actually is a biblical perspective on taxation. But, 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 you'll say, my government taxes way more than they should. In fact, they do a lot more than defending the good and punishing evildoers, right? John Frame comments on this. He says, I personally believe that the U.S. government has far overstepped the limits originally established in the Constitution. I certainly would agree with John Frame on this. Thus, it has become far more expensive. Our, tax, our taxes have become far more expensive than it should be. I also believe that lower taxes on the whole benefit the economy, while higher taxes discourage economic growth. That's you know, probably a given economically. Since government should be under law, the Bible supports efforts to bring the scope of government back to its constitutional limits, or alternatively, efforts to amend the Constitution to make it justify current practice. But, and hear this, the Bible does not quantify in general how much income government re may require of its citizens. It doesn't have anything to say about how much, does it? It says what government is for, it gives the purposes of government uh, throughout the scriptures, and it says that God has ordained government, but it doesn't specify um, how much they may tax and how much they can't. Um, and therefore, again, our taxes, from our perspective, are something that we need to render because there is a God-given uh, authority that needs those taxes to carry out their God-given task. Now, again, we don't have time to go into um, how far our government has gone beyond its constitution, and therefore the taxation is onerous on people. But one thing I want to do this morning is just touch on 
probably the most heinous tax that is placed on our society today. Probably the cruelest of all taxes, as I put it in the handout. And probably one of the most surreptitious or clandestine forms of theft known to man. And what I'm talking about here is inflation. Um, we've gone to great lengths in our country to rid ourselves of all standards. We've thrown the law of God out. We've thrown it out of our schools. When we, in, even in the economic realm, we've thrown out standards with respect to our monetary system, right? We, 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 the gold standard is, is too archaic for us. We're much wiser than that now. And so we've found out how to print money and use money as we need it for everything we desire. Martin Luther writes back in his day, this is back in the 16th century, thievery is the most common craft and the largest guild on earth. And of course, a guild was an association of craftsmen. But... Far from being picklocks and sneak thieves who pilfer the cash box, they sit in their chairs and are known as great lords and honorable, upstanding citizens while they rob and steal under the cloak of legality. You see, the greatest examples of theft in our day are not the guys that break into your house, are not even the guys that would steal online or take your credit card number. Um, even though those things are certainly abhorrence and against God's law. The worst thieves, even as in Luther's day, are those who do it under the cloak of legality. Listen to what the scripture says about this subject. Proverbs 20, verse 23, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. What, what, what is the reference to here? How did, how did we measure things in, in the olden days, right? You think of a scale, right? You think of a scale on one side, you put your goods, whatever you're wanting to measure. On the other side, what goes there? A standard weight, right? A hin or an ephah, as the scriptures call out. Those were standard weights, right? And so what was the most common sin from the get-go from sinners, what would they think they could do with this great scale? If I call this a hin or an ephah, but I, you know, scrape a little bit off so that it's a little lighter, I can change what I'm actually selling, right? I can sell less than a pound even though it says I have a pound over here. Unequal weights and measures were an abomination to God because we're saying that we're selling this much and we're actually selling less. Um, that's called out not just in Proverbs. The, the law has numerous places. Uh, Leviticus, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy, you shall have 
in your bags, you shall not have in your bags two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall have in your house, or you shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. And brothers and sisters, um, if there's one thing that is an exact example of breaking this law and of in, in, in doing that, breaking the Eighth Commandment, it is our inflationary practices in this day. As the government continues to print money, what happens to the value of that money? What happens to the costs as a result of the goods that you purchase? But more than that, that's simple economics that most people understand. Here's the real question. Who in our society is most adversely impacted by inflation? Is it not the poor? Is it not the elderly who are on a fixed income? Who are not making an income anymore? Inflation may not bother me because I may get a cost of adjustment, a cost of uh, living adjustment every year by my employer. It may not bother me because I still have an income as, as one in the workforce. But it does bother those who are in very low paying jobs and those who aren't even being paid anymore because they're retired or because they're sick or because they're injured. Consider this. Consider it in light of the Eighth Commandment, um, that we haven't spoken out against this uh, more than we have um, is, is a real shame. And it, uh, it's in direct violation with, uh, with the, the uh, standards of Scripture. Finally, let me just uh, quickly turn to wealth and poverty. Uh, you know, we've been alluding to wealth and poverty a little bit, but let's, let's look at wealth and poverty um, since we're on the subject. But again, I'm not trying to do a comprehensive review of wealth and poverty. So we couldn't do that in two or three weeks going straight. Um, but what I, what I want to do is look at wealth and poverty from the perspective of the Eighth Commandment. Um, so let's look at it in light of the Eighth Commandment. And here's just a few questions to consider thoughtfully. I'm not asking you to answer these questions even right now. Um, we're going to go through them one by one. But I just want you to consider them up front. Who actually are the poor? This is a question that's not asked much. We, we, we hear a lot about helping the poor. Don't get me wrong. Our society is falling all over themselves as people who help the poor. But a question that really needs to be asked is, who are the poor? It's very interesting if you look at how Scripture describes the poor. It's not necessarily the way society describes the poor. What are the causes of poverty, and what are its remedies? Now, there's a whole host of causes. But I want to look here, given the time limitation, at one cause which may be the most 
the, the primary cause of poverty all throughout history, and yet one that we've completely rejected in our day and age. Third, is the early church response to poverty an approbation of socialism? I mean, we often look at the early church and say, how did the early church handle uh, poverty? Is this a good example for us? And if it is, is it blatant socialism? And then fourth, in light of the Eighth Commandment, and this most importantly, what ought to be our response to poverty as we stand before Almighty God? What ought to be our response? First, who are the poor? Kuiper says, and this is Kuiper speaking as a statesman, so as a politician, as a um, one in authority, by the poor we understand people who cannot provide for themselves because they are widows, minors, the elderly, or the sick. It is an area of life where mercy reaps its laurels and comforts those who need to be comforted. Notice Paul's words to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when we were with you, we would not give you this command, or we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Pretty harsh words, are they not? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As we said before, a presupposition of the Eighth Commandment is a work ethic. According to Scripture, the poor are not the lazy, are not the slothful. The, the, the lazy and the slothful, especially in Proverbs, are fools are the foolish. They're not the poor. Now, they may be poor in terms of their monetary wealth, um, but they're not the poor uh, that Scripture refers to. Look at uh, what John Frame has to say. The poor in Scripture are not poor because they are lazy, but because of circumstances to some extent beyond their control. Most often they are poor because they have been oppressed by the rich and powerful. Remember Psalm 72 that we... We, we read together the, uh, at the beginning of the, the uh, class. Those who are oppressed, that's, that's government's role is to stop oppression, and especially against the poor. This economic deprivation then leads to hunger, health crises, and even homelessness. The disabled are often poor because they can't work, right? The most common examples of poor people in Scripture are orphans and widows. Why do you see in Scripture all through it God's desire that you help the orphans, the widows? They often have no reliable income and nobody to speak for them against oppressors. How many have heard the phrase, God sides with the poor? God is on the side of the poor. God is on the side of the poor properly defined. 
God sides with the poor when they are unjustly poor, that is, oppressed. He sides with them because they have a just case, but are unable to make their arguments through human channels. It requires an equal, it, excuse me, it is in this sense that we should equate compassion for the poor with justice. When they're unjustly poor, right? It is wrong to say that justice requires an equal distribution of resources as such. It does not. If it did, who is the worst criminal? Almighty God, is he not? If, if we needed to have an equal distribution across everybody, what has our Creator done? I certainly don't have the talents of of many in our society. I don't have even close to the intellectual capacity of many. I don't have the monetary. I wasn't given it from birth. I don't have it now. No, the scripture does, does not teach equal distribution of resources as such. When the rich oppress the poor, however, to defend the poor against them is simple justice. And that's what the scripture focuses on. Insofar as human courts, that is government, can improve the situation, they are not then to be biased in favor of the poor. Rather, they should be biased neither for the rich nor for the poor. Listen to the law of God. Exodus, you shall not fall in with many to do evil. Great, great words for a democracy. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you what? Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You see, quite frankly, it is not government as the ruler, as the judge. It is not government's job to be merciful. Did you ever, did you ever think about that? God has not given the judge the right to be merciful. What, is he, what has God given the judge authority to do? To carry out justice, right? Who is supposed to be merciful? You, me, we are supposed to be merciful. We, every human being, is supposed to be merciful. Um, government, the judge, those uh, in authority must uphold the law. But of course, our view of the law in this day and age has fallen so far. The causes of poverty and their remedies. Just one simple quote here, and I'm going to leave you with this. I think this is a very insightful quote by John Frame. Um, when you consider poverty, even in our land, and in any land across the globe, consider this. The family was, in biblical times, and today remains, the first and most solid defense against poverty. In Israel, it was understood that parents would provide for their children, 
that children would provide for their parents in old age and that parents would leave an inheritance for their children. In modern society, the breakdown of the family through illegitimacy and divorce is one of the major causes of poverty. And I would say, maybe not the major, one of the major causes, the major cause of poverty in our society. Nothing, therefore, can do more to alleviate the problem than the restoration of a biblical family structure. And yet, this won't sell today, will it? This won't get you votes. What are we doing in our land right now? We're throwing everything with respect to the family and the ordinances that God has with respect to, to, to what a true family is. We're throwing them out the window. And yet this alone would do more to reduce poverty across our land and across the world than maybe any other thing. If the family structure was as God intended and prescribed. I don't have time to go into the, the case against, uh, uh, the, or the case that's brought up by the early church. Um, let me just simply say that if you question whether that actually was socialism, whether that was actually a, a call by God or by um, the, 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 the Holy Spirit as he inspired the writer, um, the writer Luke in Acts, to put forth socialism as the answer. Um, just look at the response that uh, Peter gives to Ananias and Sapphira when they sold property and brought it to the church. What, did, uh, what was Peter's response? He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, what Peter tells Ananias, your problem isn't that you're not giving all your property away and having everybody having equal amounts. Your problem is you're lying. You're saying that you sold this for so much and you really didn't. That's your problem. And in a sense, as he says directly, you're lying to God. Um, no, this isn't, uh, uh, this isn't socialism. And uh, certainly socialism uh, has proven, if, if nowhere else in the 20th century, to be an abject failure, um, but primarily because it's opposed to Almighty God's word and his law. But let me end on this. I want to end with a challenge. How, what ought our response be to poverty? Um, and I want to ask this question. If we are not generous to the poor, are we stealing from them? Seen from Scripture, if you're not generous to the poor, are you stealing from the poor? It's a very interesting question. Um, listen to Peter Lightheart in his uh, work on the Ten Commandments. He says, theft is practical idolatry, service to mammon, one of our world's most revered idols, Ultimately, we break mammon's hold when we acknowledge that all we have is a gift from God. Our property is ours, but in the mode of gift. Once we, we reckon with God's universal ownership, 
we can see the story of fall and redemption shrouded within the eighth word or the eighth commandment. God created Adam to have dominion, to take ownership of creation. The fruit of the tree of knowledge was the one thing that belonged exclusively to God. Adam stole it. And all children of Adam are thieves stealing God's holy things, assaulting God's image by assaulting the property of others. Above all, we steal ourselves from God. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. We bear the name that marks us as the Lord's property, yet we want to be our own God. Every time we disobey, we steal and commit sacrilege, misusing God's holy things. You see, if we are not generous to the poor, are we stealing from them? No, we're really not technically, but who are we stealing from? If we're not generous to the poor, who are we stealing from? We're stealing from Almighty God, which is much worse. And it reminds you of that parable of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's maybe one of the most sobering parables that he ever gave. Of when we stand before the Son of Man when he comes in glory, and he says, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was poor, and you didn't minister to me. I was sick. I was in prison, on and on. And what did Christ say? What, 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 what was the, the result of that? Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And see, almost in black and white there we have. This is theft, but it's theft from Almighty God who has given us all that we have. We are stewards of those resources. Question, comment, we only have a minute or so to, for questions or comments. A huge subject, most of the questions would probably take uh, another class to, to go over. Anybody have any comments or questions? Yes. That's, that's a huge rub. And what does it call for? Yeah. And in all, in all, uh, all generations, it was, uh, you, you would have examples of this. But no, it is very hard. It's, it's, there is tension there. Um, we are called to submit. Um, but that doesn't mean, especially in our land where we do have freedoms, that we ought not to speak out. We need statesmen and stateswomen. You know, we, we don't need politicians. We need, we need those that actually really um, rule based on principle 
And by principle, I mean the word of God based on his law. And his. Well, we have to close. Why don't you stand with me and I'll close in prayer. Father in heaven, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, truly, we are not. And only by your grace will we use your resources um, uh, to be both merciful and just. And uh, I pray that you would uh, give us new eyes to see the Eighth Commandment, um, that we would be men and women uh, who honor you in the way that we use our resources. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.